Hello and welcome to Prejudice and Pride. I'm Claire Balding and I'll be taking you on a tour of some of the creative, dramatic and surprising histories of National Trust places. 2017 marks the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. To celebrate the significance of this anniversary, the National Trust is opening up its creaking oak closet and exploring how lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer folk have helped to both shape and preserve the house the collections, the gardens and the landscapes in the Trust's care. I'm so pleased you're joining us for Prejudice and Pride. The cities and towns of the UK have always been a hive of artistic activity, but when artists and writers need to work, they often seek out quiet, secluded spaces with plenty of time and space to think. For many LGBTQ artists and writers... Privacy was especially prized. These were spaces where people could safely be themselves, affording some tranquility that in turn fostered creativity. There are many examples of these retreats that are now in the care of the National Trust. For the war hero T.E. Lawrence, or Lawrence of Arabia as he's better known, his modest, whitewashed stone cottage, Clouds Hill in Dorset, was favoured for its seclusion. Lawrence wrote several books here, including The Seven Pillars of Wisdom in 1926 that he dedicated to Dahoum Ahmed, a young man with whom he shared an intimate relationship in his pre-war years in Syria. Despite this cottage being his bolt hole, close friends visited frequently, including Thomas Hardy, George Bernard Shaw and E.M. Forster. It's one example of many that shows how these getaways could provide the freedom for queer artistic friendship circles to flourish. Monk's House in Sussex is another, home to the author Virginia Woolf and a creative hub for artists and writers, many of them from the LGBTQ community. With me to discuss the role of creative retreats is the writer Will Eaves and Claire Barlow, assistant curator at Tate Britain, who has curated the exhibition Queer British Art. Welcome to both of you. Um, Will, first of all, why have a retreat? How important is it to find that space where you can be creative? Well, I think the obvious answer to that is that it's a line of defence or retreat from social pressures, from the liveliness of your social environment, from your day-to-day duties, and it represents an opportunity to get in touch with who you really are and what you really want to do. Now, the question of what that retreat might then be is an interesting one, because it might be a place, or it might be a practice, or it might be both. Claire, what role does the creative retreat play in LGBTQ artistic heritage? Well, I think for LGBTQ artists or for artists that we might define as LGBTQ, a retreat can be an opportunity to take stock, to reflect, but also perhaps it offers a space away from the prying eyes of the world. For lots of artists who come from sort of queer heritage and queer cultures, the boundaries between public and private are absolutely crucial because, of course, things that you do in private, if they're known about in public, may get you sent to jail in the case of many men. From your experience of curating queer British art, what's the most interesting story you've discovered about creativity? Well, I mean, there's so many to pick from. One of the stories that really has intrigued me is the story of Michael Field, who are not particularly well-known, and they live at roughly the same time as Oscar Wilde. And you'll notice that I say they because Michael Field is actually born Edith Cooper and Catherine Bradley. 
But they develop this shared authorial identity as Michael Field, but it's also an identity that they play out in their private lives. Their friends refer to them as the Michael Fields. Sometimes one of them is Michael, one of them is Field. Sometimes they're Edith and Catherine. It's an incredibly fluid identity. And what I really love about them is the fact that they declare themselves to be closer married than Elizabeth Browning and Robert Browning. And they actually include on the covers of their books interlocking wedding rings as a symbol of their union. Will, can I ask you, what's your own personal experience of of going on a retreat to write? Well, at the risk of making myself sound like a bit of a sort of misanthropist, (laughs) I think that my experience has been more to do with seeking some kind of solitude. A creative retreat is sort of quite close, I think, for me, in spirit to a spiritual retreat, which means that you seek out some kind of seclusion or silence and darkness even, and the effect of that is to sharpen your senses. But the thing about being on your own is that it's also an encounter with the truth. And that's very testing, because when you're on your own, there's nowhere else to run. So the idea of a retreat as being somewhere liberating and rather beautiful and peaceful is often not what people find when they go on retreat, because... The retreat narrows the focus and the questions become about them and their relationship with themselves, and that's often quite uncomfortable. And that kind of process of wrestling with yourself and agonising over who you are and who you could be is an experience which I think is common to you know most people within the sort of queer community in that we've had to make a very big statement about ourselves. I am this, and some of you are going to hate me for that, irrespective of what I do or say. And I think that leaves scars. Have we also got examples of people in a relationship together working creatively together? Yeah, we do. Ethel Sands and Nan Hudson are quite lovely because they're a sort of, there are a couple about which there's a lot of dispute over whether or not they're in a relationship, despite the fact that there's lots of love letters between them. In another really nice one is Dora Carrington and Lytton Strachey, where we included them in the exhibition not because they're in a relationship, because, you know, Strachey is attracted to men, but Carrington has relationships with men and women. But the relationship between them is actually the most important and enduring in their lives. And I think it's really important to remember that it's not always the erotic relationship that helps you understand who Completely. you are. Completely. It's the kinship thing that you develop, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, the, it's funny... a queer family that you create. Absolutely. And those very funny kind of sort of additions to photographs of Keith Vaughan and Patrick yeah. Proctor, you know, the one sort of haunting the other in the background. Very touching. Mm, absolutely. Um, of course, it's what people find in relationships full stop, isn't it? That sometimes it's the sort of the intimate glue that's the really substantial part of it. And the, the erotic part transfers elsewhere during the exactly. course and, of and, and actually people get obsessed with that, with, with, yeah. the, with, the, with the sexual contact. And was there, wasn't there? Were they in a relationship or were they not? Yeah. Actually, a, a relationship is about connection. Mm. It's about conversation. It's about comfort. It's about creativity sometimes. It's about love. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think trying to sort of cast the beams of torches into bedrooms of the past is always mm. deemed to failure and may not be very edifying even if you could do it. And what you need is... to know is who is supporting who. Um, Absolutely. You know, who is the most important person in somebody's life? Who is the person who they turn to in good times and bad? And love, the love sometimes is for the place of refuge mm. as well as for a person or for things in the environment or the environment itself. 
So someone like T.H. White, Mm. who led a pretty difficult alcoholic and quite lonely life, nonetheless found great solace on the Stowe estate where he lived and was trying to write The Goshawk, Mm. which is a fantastic book, but it's really about his love for an animal and it's about his way of reconciling himself to his sexuality through the business of learning falconry. Thank you both so much. To Will Eaves, to Claire Barlow, many thanks. Well, one example of a creative retreat is Bucks Mills Cabin in North Devon. EJ visited to find out more. The creative retreat has a long history in the UK and there's a host of wonderful examples in the care of the National Trust. But none is quite as evocative as Bucks Mills Cabin, situated on the North Devon coast. It's a tiny one-up, one-down cottage built of local stone overlooking Biddeford Bay. In summers gone by, it was home to two artists, Judith Ackland and Mary Stella Edwards, who came here every year for almost 50 years after their first visit. They clearly adored the space, and Ackland bought it in the 1920s so that they could visit it whenever they wished. Each summer visit was a return home for Ackland, who was born here in the village of Biddeford, but the two artists first met as students in London, where they studied at Regent Street Polytechnic. They produced a body of work here that's now displayed in major galleries throughout the UK. When Ackland died suddenly in 1971, Edwards was so consumed by grief that she simply never returned to the cabin that they had shared for so many years. That's why, even today, the cabin is just as it was the last time they locked the door, expecting to return the following summer, as they always did. I think this gives us a glimpse of how creative retreats inspire LGBTQ people. They are places of solace. Retreats are somewhere the creative mind can puzzle away at a safe distance. Distance from the prying of a sideways glance or from the exhaustion of explanation. For Ackland and Edwards, the idyllic setting of Bucks Mills Cabin was a deeply restorative place to be. It was a place of comfort with a beautiful view of the world. I'm walking down a bending path, past a stone wall. It's very isolated. It looks like this might have been whitewashed once. Oh my, the view. It really is absolutely spectacular. We're just down these stone steps. I'm going to meet Luke Johns, Ranger for the National Trust. Hello, Luke. Hi, EJ. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you, because... It's so beautiful. It is. What a fabulous day to be out. Tell me what we're looking at, Luke. Yeah, OK. So we're looking out across Biddeford Bay here, Bristol Channel. We are at the mouth of it. Um, on a really clear day, you can see right out across the Wales. Luke, you're a ranger for the Trust. What do your duties involve? So I've been a ranger for about five years. I started as a volunteer um, and now I've eventually, you know, into the paid realms of it. Um, and my duties are a very varied role. Uh, so we can be out working with schools to managing scrub, um, a lot of coast path. We look after about 2,500 acres of land here. Now tell me, the cabin isn't open very often, is it? No, that's right. So we only open the cabin maybe one or two times a year for public open days. The majority of when it's open is through artists in residence, locally and, and you know not, who use the cabin for maybe two or three days to a whole week to two weeks. And as part of that, they open the cabin to the public as well. Let's go and have a peek inside. Oh, gosh. You can smell it. Just oh, like well, it. yes, yeah, you can, you can smell that damp, that old smell. How big do you think this is, Luke? I would say it's no bigger than, what, 
three by five meters. So everything you see in here has pretty much been left entirely as the Mary and Judith left it. Tell me about how the trust acquired the property. Yeah, so after Mary died in 89, uh, it got passed on to an Ackland Edwards charitable trust who looked after it until when they couldn't no longer look after it and keep it in you know, a good state of repair. So they gifted it and the land below us here on the slope to the National Trust. It started in about 2004 and I think we finally got it in 2008. And let's talk about that view. I mean, this is what they would have been painting, isn't it? Absolutely. So, yeah, this is why they chose the cabin as an artist's studio, painting such brilliant landscapes as that. I'm not biased. It's <laughs> <laughs> not because I live here. But, yeah, it's absolutely, you know, bit of a bay and they're you know, changing light through the seasons and through the day. Yeah, inspired them. Should we head upstairs, EJ, show you around up there? Oh, I'd love to. Let's see it. Follow me up. And just mind your head on the way up. There's bits hanging up next to it here. Oh, it's so small and tight, isn't it? Oh. There we little go. wooden steps. It opens up when we get to the top here. Oh. Luke, I can see something under the bed over there. Can we have a quick look at that? Yes, yeah, so it's a wicker basket. Yeah. So if we go around, if we pull it out, we can have a look. In here, you've got bits and pieces, paintbrushes, quills, oh. old paints. And inside the cardboard box here, we've got more paintbrushes, pencils, all their arty equipment. It's really interesting because the colours are of the landscape and the sea. All the colours around us, vermilion, light red, a grey, a ivory black, a viridian tint. It's a very, very bright greeny blue. It's clear that the cabin and this space and the surrounding landscape was an inspiration to the two women, but in fact, it still is today. So I'm just going to step back outside and here I find Kim Noceda. Kim, tell me what you're doing here. Well, I've been working as an artist in residence. I'm very lucky to be here at the cabin, really privileged. Tell me what you do as artist in residence. So once a year, I bring myself here and I just draw and get back to, I guess, my first love about art, which is sketching. And then I've also invited some of my students to work with me as well. How did the students find it? Well, same as me, I think. I think they found it really calming and very atmospheric. How did they respond? Well, I think they did really well. I've got some great drawings and I'm hoping that we'll have a chance to exhibit the work at the Burton Art Gallery, which is where the archive material was kept. So there's a real connection there. So there's all the letters that the ladies wrote to each other, which is one of the things that got me hooked, to be honest with you. What's so, in the letters? Oh, it's just their love for each other, their affection for the area, their fondness for the cabin and how special it was to them. And all sorts of aspects of their relationship. Does this environment affect your creativity? For me, definitely, definitely, yeah. I, I sort of associate coming here with this sort of feeling of calm and also knowing that these ladies that lived and worked here were there. It's almost like I can feel them over my shoulder, almost. And I'm not, I'm not superstitious or anything. I don't really believe in ghosts, but I definitely feel that presence. I imagine back then it must have been a place that was private for them. I think so. I think that was part of the appeal because I really think 
I mean, this is about as busy as it gets here. There's about half a dozen people on the beach. So certainly in the 20s, you know, you maybe had a few fishermen. I think you could definitely hide out here if you wanted to. If I just take you inside, I can show you some of the work that they did while they were in here. Oh, I'd love that. Let's go. And here we are. What's this? So this is a kind of a catalogue of all of their paintings and a few photographs as well. And in it, you can see exactly the sort of work that Judith and Mary Stella Edwards were producing at the time. And this is one of Judith Ackland's paintings of the beach at Bucks Mills. Beautiful, gentle painting, lovely use of colour. And a lot of their work was very much of the landscape, of the time, and local scenes as well, Biddeford and around here. Beautiful work, really of its time, the sort of work that you'll see professional artists doing in the sort of 20s, 30s, 40s. Really lovely, soft use of colour. And this one here is actually of Judith, mm -hmm. painted by Mary. So yeah. they were painting each other. They did, yeah. Although I think Judith was... I think there was a lot of crossover. They both painted. One of them was a poet as well. And they also developed this use of this new way of making models with cotton wool. And they made these little figures. And in fact, one of those is in the Burton Art Gallery. This is one, and they're, they're very realistic. They're little models. Again, they made of each other because I think they were very inspired by each other. They were each other's muses, I would imagine. Kim, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear what an inspiration you find the place to still be, especially considering that it proves that they've left a legacy. Thank you. Oh, you're most welcome. Long may it last. From the diaries of Mary Stella Edwards, January to February, 1973. The words of others. The North Star, the half-heard radio said, no matter in what connection. And the tears sprang sliding across my eyes, so that I heard no more, hiding this paper. But not that constellation that shines in my brain and ever at that door, where we stood always when stars were bright at bedtime. Stood in the dark night air, joined in love and gazing. And in a book I read, a few words only, the rowan already bright with berries. And at once we stand together in that enchantment and place, first found that day. And I picked the oak leaf spray to hold it always. But now, only with tears. I have it still, shriveled and dry, among my treasures. Thank you for listening to Prejudice and Pride. To hear more in the series, search for Prejudice and Pride in your podcast app or do have a look at the National Trust website. <laughs>